And God would respond with life in the land, with security. Take delight in the Lord, verse 4, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. These three verses. Do this. Trust in God. Do good. Delight in the Lord. Trust in God. And God will act on your behalf. Now, that phrase, he will give you the desires of your heart, that has been, can be, often is, and will be abused by followers of Jesus. The Lord is not saying that you get whatever you want. The Lord does not say with this verse that all will go well for you. The Lord through David certainly is not saying this because as we look at David's life, all has not gone well for him. All has not gone well for him, and he has not always done good. He has not always been well in how he has functioned. So if we believe that the life of David is reflected and gathered up in this verse, then it's not to be that he's saying, you can have whatever you want, and life will go every way you want it to go if you trust in the Lord. David's life says otherwise. Interestingly enough, uh, verse 25 you look over verse 25 if you have the scriptures in front of you. He says, I have been young and now am old. I have been young and now am old. He's writing this at the end of his life where he has his whole life to look back on, a life of experience. So certainly we know if he, looks, if he has his own life in mind, give you the desires of your heart doesn't mean everything will go your way. Instead, it's an overall awareness that the movement of God in our lives is toward our good. And David, at the end of his life, says, you can trust this. And we, reading this passage through the lens of the New Testament, can know that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all will be well for us. And through his return, the world will be put to rights. So there is this rhythm do not fret. Instead, trust. Do not fret. Instead, take delight in the Lord. Do not fret. Instead, commit your way to the Lord. And God will care for you. Your hands, your life, your life will be in God's hands. And then skip over to verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Seems to me that of all the commands in this brief passage that we're looking at this morning, this one in verse 7 is the one upon which all the others rest. Or at least, if we do verse 7 well by the power of the Holy Spirit, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. If we are able to embrace stillness, a deeper stillness before God, then it becomes possible to receive from the Holy Spirit all that we need to not fret. And to trust and to take delight in the Lord. It seems to me that if we do not have a practice of opening ourselves to the stillness of God and the Holy Spirit, it becomes very hard not to fret. Uh, we are much more likely to fret if there is an absence of stillness in our lives. Be still before the Lord. Be still and know. We sang just a moment ago from Psalm 46. Be still before the Lord. And wait patiently for him. What does it mean to be still before God? It means different things for different people. For some of us, the rain this morning just automatically generated a sense of stillness in our souls. For many of us, to be still before the Lord is to uh, just take a moment as we're driving to work to turn off the radio, 
to gather ourselves and allow God to speak to us. For some of us, it's getting up with that cup of coffee as the sun rises and being still. For others of us, it's at the end of the day where we take a moment to be still and review the day and thank God for all that we've experienced and to listen for God's grace and blessing at the end of the day. For some people, being still before God happens in the midst of vigorous exercise. There's something about uh, combining mind, body, and soul in exercise that for many people generates a stillness and an attentiveness before God. For others, it's a walk in the park. It's different for different people. There's no one prescription of being still before the Lord that all must follow. Instead, we look at how God has made us, our personalities, our experiences, our season in life. And all of these things combine to create what it means for each of us individually to be still before the Lord. Uh, the call is not for all of us to be alike in our stillness. The call is for each of us to explore how God has made us so that we, in our own way, can be still before God. Again, to be still before God, it seems to me, certainly in my experience, then empowers us not to fret and to trust and to take delight and to commit our way to the Lord. A couple of things about the power of stillness and the practice of stillness in our lives. Notice in verse 7, uh, David says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him that immediately follows that with another, do not fret. Do not fret over those who prosper in their way, over those who carry out evil devices. There is a connection between stillness and others. In this sense, it is stillness over those who are prospering in uh, unethical, unhealthy, unfaithful ways. But there's also the implication in these verses. Be still before those who are making life difficult for you. Be still before those who are causing pain and difficulty in your life. Certainly throughout the Psalms, those attributed to David, we find him uh, frequently, frequently speaking of those who are out to do him harm and who are making his life difficult. And so it is in the stillness that he is able to process and bring before the Lord the evil of others who bring difficulty upon him, but also his own evil. His own sin, as we see in Psalm 51, that we looked at several weeks ago. To be still before the Lord is to take all that has been done to us that leads us from the Lord's path, and all that we do in our sinfulness that leads us away from the Lord's path, and to process it, and to, to get it out, and to get it out before the Lord. Well, um, our son Davis plays for uh, the Huntington High boys soccer team. And if you've ever had a, a child or a grandchild that plays sports, you know that as a parent, you have responsibilities for the concession stand. Anybody ever done that? Uh, band, dance, uh, you know, what? There, there's forever and concessions for high school sports is all about raising money. If you had a child do anything, you've been a part of a fundraiser in some way, shape, or form. And so uh, home games, we're responsible for the concessions. And uh, the last uh, couple of home games, I drew the, the straw of being the person who uh, must take the trash to the dumpster from uh, the trash generated from all the concessions that you sold to make money for your, for your team. And so in our stadium, our little soccer field, we've got, uh, 
We've got a big trash can right by the concession stand, and then we've got four trash cans uh, set up along the bleachers, and, uh, and they're trash bags. Man, these are big trash cans, big trash cans. And so they're big trash cans, and, and they're big trash bags that you have to you know, pick them up, pull them out, wrap them up, and carry them all the way to the dumpster. It feels like it's a half mile away. It's really not that far. And so everything was going well uh, when I was doing this trash duty, uh, except for this. Uh, one out of the five trash cans uh, did not have a trash bag in it. Whoever had set things up had not put, I see Mitch shaking his head, you've experienced this. They had not put the trash bag in it. Now, you would think that if you were a good citizen and you were at that game and you had some trash to dispose of and you saw that in the big trash can there wasn't a trash bag, you would think that you would take your trash to the other trash can where uh, there was a trash bag. You would be thinking of the person who would have to clean up your mess later, right? You wouldn't think that. But do we think that way? Of course not. So that was, of the five, that was the trash can with the most trash in it. And see, here was the problem. The trash can is too big for me to put the bag over it and then dump, you know what I'm saying? Dump the trash into the bag. So what did I have to do? Carry it. It was a humbling experience. We all need to go through that. And the problem was that uh, whoever whoever used that trash can, it was right in the middle. Um, had, some people had had lots of french fries with lots of ketchup, and they just dumped it all over. They, they didn't need it. So I am picking it. Uh, I survived. It's okay. I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right. I wish that there had been a bag in there to gather up all the trash because... What took me about 10 minutes would have taken me 15 seconds to gather it up and bring it out. As I was thinking about it, that trash bag, in many ways, functioned like a time of stillness that we are invited to have before God. A time where we just gather up all that's been poured on us, call it trash, call it what you want, all that's been poured on us, and all that we have poured into ourselves. All the ways that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All the ways that we have made our lives and the lives of others more difficult to be still before God. Is to take the hurt that's been placed upon us. The hurt that we have placed upon ourselves. And the hurt that we have placed upon others. Gather it up in <coughs> confession and prayer and hope. Bag it up. Put it aside. And allow the Lord through Jesus Christ to take care of it. But when there's no bag there, when there's never a time when we're still, when there's never a time when we bring our own pain before God and stillness, and our own sin before God and stillness, when that never happens, the trash just piles up, and it piles up, and it piles up, and it doesn't get taken out. And when it does get taken out, it gets really, really messy. And so the call, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. And when we do so, we find our ability to confess our sins and trust in the Lord. We find our fretting to be diminished, our trusting to increase as we live and walk before the Lord. 
But this call in verse 7 to be still before the Lord is not just something that we do for ourselves, for our own spiritual growth. To be in the practice of stillness before God is to prepare ourselves to be present with others. Again, verse 7 is not a solo individualistic verse. Be still before the Lord. Do not fret over those who prosper in their way. When we are still before God, we not only choose not to fret over others, but are more present with others. Whether they are seeking to do us harm or not, we are able to be ourselves, to protect ourselves, so to speak, not to be a doormat, doormat but to be clearly, intentionally who we are with others. And we are able to share our attentiveness to those that God has placed us before. To be still before God is to prepare us to be still before others. Seems to me it's hard to listen well to someone else if we haven't been listening well to God. Vice versa, if we listen well in stillness, waiting patiently for God, for God, we'll be able to listen well to others. It's hard to wait patiently for someone else if we don't know how to wait patiently for God. If we know how to wait patiently for God, we grow in our ability to wait patiently for others. It's not that waiting patiently is a passive kind of thing. Psalm 70, verse 1, make haste to help me, O Lord. Make haste to help me. Verse uh, Psalm 13, David says, consider and answer me, O Lord. How long will you wait to answer me? Uh, all those things happen in the midst of stillness. We're calling on God to move and to act. It's not a passive thing. Instead, it's an act that leads us to a deeper trust in God. Well, uh, over the years, there's something I've learned about myself when it comes to stillness. Um, I know if I'm in a rhythm that the sign, uh, the symbol, the indication that I've been practicing stillness before the Lord uh, is most often found in how quickly or not quickly I eat my food. We have any quick eaters in here? Uh, I'm a fast eater. I, I eat. Uh, I eat quickly. I've shared with you before, and, and I have a, a younger brother who's bigger than I am, and uh, it was a competitive sport growing up at, at our at our house. Uh, uh, when I didn't realize this until Lisa and I started dating, when she quickly pointed out that I'm left-handed, I eat with my left hand, and then I have my other hand on the table around around the plate, guarding guarding those who might want to. And that generates a fast pace in eating. But I find that when I'm in a rhythm of being still before God, I slow down when I eat. Uh, there are lots of benefits to that. The slower you eat, the less you eat, so that's good for weight things. Uh, the slower you eat, the more intentional you are about your, what you eat, you eat in a healthier way. The slower you eat, the more you save your savor your food, so uh, even the stuff that's not good for you, but tastes good, you still savor the taste, but you don't eat as much. There are lots of health benefits that come along when we eat slowly. But more than that, when we eat slowly, we're better able to pay attention to the people with whom we eat, and better able to pay attention to God, from whom all blessings flow including the blessing of food. When we're able to eat slowly, it indicates a, an ability not to fret as much over all of the cares and occupations 
of this life. It shows that out of our stillness, there really is a trust in the Lord. And so it's appropriate today that in a passage that invites us to deeper stillness, not to fret, but to trust in the Lord, commit our way to the Lord, be still and wait patiently for the Lord, we're invited to share the Lord's Supper. We're invited to take our time as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, and as we're reminded of all that Jesus did for us in his life, his death, and his resurrection, to give us life in such a way that we do not have to fret, and we can trust in the Lord, who has given us all we will ever need. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.